Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Moving does give you a license to do nothing in a weird way, doesn't it? Because you feel you're making some form of progress just by sitting there. And so sitting reading a book or just staring into space in a train is easier to do than the same thing when at home. Rory Sutherland is one of the most fascinating and flamboyant speakers to grace this podcast. Many other adjectives as well. Elegant, eloquent, uh, as well as being the vice chairman of Ogilvy UK. Rory is an expert in consumer behavior, trends and online influence, which basically means you can talk to him about literally anything and he'll have a unique point of view. I wasn't even sure what to call this one because it's such a jumble of topics and we cover so much ground um, and I'll have to get him back on to talk more because I really wanted to talk more about transport which which sounds boring bear with me just talking about transport sounds boring but the way that Rory does it I've heard him on other podcasts and stuff it's, it, it is really really good about how we can do things differently and, and put the human first hey that's what this podcast does putting people first the human remembering the human uh, but we'll go into the perils of the press we'll discuss psychopaths and we'll look into ways that electric cars that's right we're getting onto that and transport is getting things wrong and right i mean did you guys know about dog mode in electric cars i didn't but if you did there's more extra stuff i promise you there's loads of stuff he's gonna it's it's a real eye-opener i read and loved his book transport for humans the link is in the show notes so you should get it i think it is really good i'd also like to thank my cousin michelle slade and rob dix her husband of the property podcast which is great by the way uh, if you want to know about property and you're into all that stuff do look that up um but thank you to them for suggesting rory as a guest god i'm sort of rushing through this aren't i i've still got a bad throat from covid it's been weeks now but you know what can you do great suggestion uh michelle and rob it was a really really fun chat talking to rory and as for me that newsletter is going strong so do keep signing up it's free uh and out every monday with bits i've learned while interviewing the world's most unique minds that's weeklyedge.substack.com but now here's rory on the edge So your audio does much better than your YouTube channel. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I think it's a matter of, like, where you really focus your attention when you start. Because when I started, and I think it's the same for most podcasters, you don't don't have any money, so you're doing it on the side. So until I only started actually living from the podcast about two months ago, and that's when I thought, okay, now I've got time to actually work on the YouTube page, do the thumbnails and the advertising and the marketing and all that rubbish. I've just started a Substack channel, and I'll eventually have to start putting a bit more work into it, I think. I've just started doing that as well. Substack. It's actually weirdly lucrative. Having you know, I'm quite chuffed. 
I mean, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't live off it. But I mean, it's money worth having. I, and I guess as like a, you know, marketing and advertising specialist, you must be really good at this kind of thing and getting it set up. But some people do it. You know, you get a paid one. I presume yours is, a, is behind a paywall, whereas mine is to sort of a newsletter to link. It's free, but it will link the sort of audio to the video and get people to watch both. So, how do you monetize the podcast most effectively? Is that through? Is that just through Spotify listens or? No, no. So it's it's a mixture of things. So there's obviously Patreon and things like that. So I sometimes do some bonus episodes, little extra bits that the patrons get and ad free, of course. And then there's the ads. So I've got an agency who go about finding my ads. They place them into the podcast uh, and then they take like a 30% cut or something like that. Oh, that's not too bad. That's not too grim, actually. No, it's not. But I mean, look, ideally you don't want adverts you know what are you endorsing no i see what you mean sam harris um does in his podcast he sort of set a precedent because he uh in his podcast he said i'm not going to do any ads because i don't want to be saying hey take this face cream because i don't i don't want to endorse that what if it's not a good face cream um so he says it's only patreon and if you want to pay because of that but the thing is he's got like a million you know followers yeah in fact it's probably more much more profitable to do that than to do ads once you hit that kind of volume but equally, in fairness to the ads, they do help small podcasts hit a reasonable scale. Um, because there is that problem of the winner takes all, um, you know, the winner takes all effect in, in anything like this that you end up with. There's a wonderful statistic about this, which is that the average earnings of an author, um, if you correct for inflation, are about the same as they were 50 years ago. Uh, unless you strip out J.K. Rowling and Dan Brown, in which case everybody else has gone down about 50%, and there are two people who are near billionaires. It's extraordinary that. I, my first ever job was at HarperCollins as, a, as a, a publishing assistant about 12, 13 years ago, and I was just out of university. And I remember feeling really a bit depressed at the time because their big selling book that year was Justin Bieber's uh, sort of book of pictures or something oh you're familiar with it and uh so that was just huge and it was translated into like 20 languages it just went mad and i was a bit like oh well is this what publishing is going to be and then someone said look we released you know uh tolkien's like something of tolkien last year and it did well and the bieber thing's done something like 17 times better but we have bieber so that we can still do tolkien and all the other smaller authors it is it's a very strange business so I think with publishing, the two extraordinary things are it's something like 70, 75% Christmas by volume. And, you know, if you, if you then include birthdays, a huge amount of publishing is really gift giving. Hence the Bieber stuff, you see. It's kind of vaguely improving present that you give to a grandchild. Uh, it's also overwhelmingly female, I think, as well. If you look at the look at book buyers, nonfiction is different. That's probably about even as a gender mix, but fiction is overwhelmingly female. I wonder why that is. No, I, I mean maybe it always was. Um, you know the novel, um, uh, but um, uh, it's uh, it, 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 there's some really surprising things. I mean the thing that always surprises me is that uh, interest. This is both true in documentaries and in books. Interest in serial killers leans heavily female. Which you wouldn't really expect, would you? Ooh, there's a new one out on Fred and Rose West. You know, you might think there are a few sick blokes, like me actually, uh, who'd actually turn up and buy that thing. But uh, no, strangely female. Yeah, I find the whole interest in true crime really interesting because um, I was a while ago, I was doing some work looking into pedophiles and you can't sell anything. Nobody wants to know about that. But if it's 
a pedophile who murdered people, people want to read that. Uh, this is most peculiar. I was having a, this is a terrible name drop, but I was chatting to, uh, to John Cleese on a podcast about this. You mentioned John Cleese on Chris Williamson's. I was going to ask you how you knew John Cleese. Fascinating. Uh, uh, long story. I mean, he's been a nudge stock speaker and we've been out for dinner a few times. But I was making this point about making judgment about jokes that it was the Jimmy Carr uh, event particularly jokes that are disgusting and also funny we should explain things like things like jimmy carr just for you know non-british audiences what what he said i suppose uh, no i would i don't like to repeat it was basically he he does a whole sequence of how far can you go in telling you know jokes that effectively violate every single convention of human decency and because of the framing of the thing, and the joke was slightly reported out of context, because he was giving examples of very extreme jokes, which is slightly different from just telling the joke straight off. And it was basically a Holocaust-related joke, which I won't tell, because you didn't sign on to the podcast expecting that kind of joke. Okay, Now, you, you know, now in fairness, if you turn up to see Jimmy Carr, uh, which I'm fairly sure the title of the thing effectively led you to believe that it was going to be fairly outrageous, you can reasonably expect to be outraged because that's his shtick. Um, and so funny enough, I was chatting to John, partly saying that um, although I understand quite a lot of the fear about sort of censoring jokes, comedy, etc., I've never really understood the right-wing antipathy to trigger warnings, which seemed to me quite sensible. You know, if there is something you find distressing, and we can never know what those things are. Warning people in advance so that they can avoid being distressed seems to me simply like a courteous and reasonable thing to do in the same way that you warn people if, you know, there are going to be nuts on the plane or whatever. OK, and you can't you can't tell what upsets people because we don't live their experience. You know, there are people who can watch, for example, a drama containing a rape with relative equanimity. And they're going to be people for whom that will distress them for days for obvious reasons in terms of your lived experience. And so warning people of those things strikes me as eminently sensible, even in an academic context. You know, if you're dealing with a you know, a particular subject in classical mythology, or warning people that they might be triggered, doesn't strike me as unreasonable. Can I just say, the, the, uh, sorry, the, the only thing I'd say is, is that I have heard, and you might know more, you'll definitely know more than I do, that trigger warnings can actually annoy people, they can, they can upset people more, because it sort of makes them feel triggered. That's interesting. I mean, it, I, I think it depends on context. It's a fair, fair point, and it's worth investigating, in fact. And there was a hysterical thing, someone was watching something the other day, where although it showed things like people getting their genitalia out, which would have been absolutely scandalous in my childhood, it had a continuous warning on the screen, which never went away, which said, contains scenes of nicotine use. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's a slightly interesting reflection on what people in 2023 find shocking, uh, as distinct from what people would have found shocking in 1978. But no, the point I was making about the jokes was that, I mean, the irony with the trigger warning is that I used to record onto a laptop with a 17-inch screen when I flew quite a lot. I used to record things straight from my skybox down to my laptop so I could catch up on TV series while I was away. And it meant my wife could then watch the same series without one of us getting grumpy that the other one had, you know, gone ahead. And so I'd just record random things that I'd recorded to my skybox and watch them on the plane, including, and I'm not remotely frightened of flying, 
I used to watch air crash investigation on the plane. <laughs> and I had this laptop with a seven. It was a MacBook with a seventeen-inch screen, and it was only on about the third occasion that it occurred to me that probably one in three people in the plane was significantly <laughs> scared. And so, looking over my shoulder and seeing a sort of Korean airline seven four seven plowing into a mountainside, okay, and shots of general carnage on the ground uh, beneath wouldn't be altogether reassuring and pleasant for someone who is frightened of flying. And so in, in defence of trigger warnings, it, it is fair to point out that we can be extraordinarily insensitive if we don't suffer from some phobia or some experience ourselves. We can be very insensitive to others. But when it comes to jokes, I said I can't really legislate between jokes that are disgusting and jokes which are disgusting and funny. OK, in other words, and in the same way, I said, I can't really explain um, why it is that there are certain serial killers, you know, on whom I will happily watch a two hour sky crime documentary. And there are other serial killers where I go, Green River killer, no, you know, I've got crossbow cannibal. I'm not watching that. It's absolutely disgusting. Right. Now, you know, Fred and Rose West are, you know patently disgusting right i mean there's no you know i don't think there's any defense you can really come to but strangely there are serial killers on whom i can happily watch documentaries i mean the um night stalker or whatever it might be okay you know cert certain serial killers for some reason are interesting and intriguing and then there are certain serial killers who bizarrely cross this line to a point where they're just repellent you know so harold shipman you know i watched a documentary on harold shipman but I wouldn't watch a documentary on the crossbow cannibal or, um, you know, actually Ed Gain. I don't think I'd watch a documentary because it's too revolting. And I go, this is ridiculous. I mean, I, where am I drawing this absurd distinction from? <laughs> it's mad. And I, I like, I mean, there's something I remember David Mitchell, the comedian, saying. He was, he was saying rape, awful. It's one of the worst words you can say. It triggers something in you just to think about it. But rape and pillage for some reason, it's like a funny thing the Vikings did. Do you know what I mean? You add the pillage word and it's okay. An interesting question whether rape in, in the context of rape and pillage actually means the same thing, which, it, well, it, I mean, most people would assume it does. Um, and th th there's a, uh, this is actually, I'm going to start Googling things now. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, because it might be related to rapine, which is the violent seizure of someone's property. So I, um, it, it's also very strange that um, if you think about it, this is some, something to do with how the brain processes language. Uh, you can talk about Leicester Square, visit Leicester Square, walk around Leicester Square um, on a hundred occasions without remotely thinking of the town of Leicester. Or it's a city now, probably. You see what I mean? You just don't make the connection at all. It's just Leicester Square. And I, you know, and and so words, particularly in sort of in couplets like that, just take on. There is a word for it, hendiadis. I think is one notion where you have things like bread and butter. Uh, in, in other words, it's two things joined by an and, which really mean one thing. Bread and butter does not mean bread and butter. It means bread that's been covered in butter. Um, uh, you know, but. Uh, yeah, you, um, that's a very good. It's actually, a very good. Okay, I'm going to actually see whether the whether the rape in rape and pillage actually means that. I think it's what you said. I think it's that the pillaging and because pillaging is such an antiquated, you know, foddy doddy thing, it makes it silly and not real to us. 
weirdly, it's the take. It probably can also mean to steal. But then it's stealing and stealing. It's redundant. Yeah, I, I yeah, I kind of guess. Unless unless pillage is stealing from within a house and and and, and rape is stealing from without or something like that. There's twocking, isn't there? Taking without owner's consent. Um, it's a, it's, but even so, you're absolutely right. It's a comical Viking notion, and therefore, um, uh, it doesn't have the same meaning at all. Utterly bizarre. Is this what you discussed with John Cleese then, or was it more the comedy side? Uh, no, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know what to do about, you know, I mean, it was what was slightly ridiculous about that Jimmy Carr thing was that um, uh, it was taken completely out of context. In that, if you showed both the uh, lead up to it and the follow on. He kind of got away with it, whereas if if you hadn't watched the whole thing, and this is by the way something which is extremely uh, dubious, you probably saw that story where there were lots of shots of Boris Johnson apparently being snubbed at the NATO uh, conference. Okay, and it was somebody I thought quite usefully on Twitter uh, just took the whole the footage from the whole event and re-edited it so it was literally Boris Johnson being affectionately greeted by Joe Biden and about four other world leaders who are all making a specific effort to come up to him and kind of hug him okay and the extent to which um edited video you've got to be very very careful by the way you know those video shots where someone is apparently a you know a, removed from a plane okay for some totally trivial infraction well uh, you know it's worth noting that you don't see what happened before the camera started filming for a start and you don't know that you're seeing the entire footage of the event either okay so i mean it is incredibly easy to re-edit film footage to as happened actually with the queen famously and i think a bbc documentary that you know she was pissed off about something and so they had a bit of footage of the queen being pissed off and a bit of footage of some portrait artist uh, you know, making her stand for a portrait or something and effectively combined the two and reordered them, in fact, to make it appear that she was pissed off about standing for the portrait. And you can do that so easily because, uh, you know, video narrative and narrative grammar and film grammar generally follow some, you know, fairly um, long established conventions where you don't have to show everything. Okay. And so you make inferences from what you see and the order in which it appears. And therefore, the filmmaker has extraordinary power uh, to essentially completely change the narrative simply by leaving out a few things judiciously or, you know, choosing to focus on something. Well, I'm a documentary maker. It's, it's what we do, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it, and it, I, it's, it's also worth noting, by the way, that most media bias, this is a finding from Robert Cialdini, most media bias isn't really telling people what to think. It's telling people what to think about. Okay. And so the relative prominence you give to a story, that's the real power you have as an editor. It's not whether you say this is terrible or this is okay. It's whether you put it on the front page or whether you put it on page five. Guys, so I just heard something mind-blowing. Okay, so you know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a fraction 
of what Netflix actually has. Netflix actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only like 6,000 of those are available in the US. You're missing out on literally thousands of great shows, unless you use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location so you can decide where Netflix thinks you are. They offer over 100 different locations, allowing you to access thousands of new shows no matter where you live. This works with many other streaming services too, like Disney+, Hulu, Max, and even BBC iPlayer, which is usually only free in the UK. I was able to tune into Germany and watch the harrowing movie Son of Saul about a man in a concentration camp, and then lighten the mood a bit when I went virtually to Canada to watch Monty Python, The Meaning of live a documentary about the Monty Python comedians. All I had to do was open ExpressVPN, select Germany or Canada, tap one button to connect and refresh Netflix to watch it. Anyone could do it. It's really fast. I can stream everything in HD with no buffering. Works on any device. I can enjoy my shows on phone, laptop, tablet, TV. It just works. Encrypts your data as well. ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security, keeping you safe from hackers. So stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you guys three extra months free when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash heretics. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash heretics to get three extra months completely free. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. See, I've been thinking this this for a while, actually. So, mate, I, and I, I'm really fascinated, and you know, I'm happy you brought that up, because... It does feel, and I've said this before on the podcast, it feels like there's always something we need to be desperately worried about. And that's not to downplay the concern because there is always, you know, these things are concerning. But it was it was ISIS for a long time, then suddenly it, it wasn't. And then it was Trump, and then it was COVID. Num- num- number 10 parties were, to be honest, and, and, and there's first of all, there's an echo chamber within the media to an extent. Um, so... You know, the story becomes the story, if you like. It's not the original events or the outcome or the behaviour that's the story. It's now a story about a story. I also think one thing I miss about Trump, which I liked, was the fact that he was incredibly rude to journalists. You know, so-and-so, so-and-so from CNN. And you just go, I noticed your viewing figures are falling again. Sad, you know, tragic. Now... At one level, those of us who have some view that there's a kind of little bit of hierarchy in human relations, okay, would take the view that one guy, even if you don't like him very much, is the elected representative of 350 million people, okay, and the head of state. And the other guy is some jumped up jerk who's got a job interviewing, you know, he's basically paid to shout at people walking out of buildings, okay. He's a journalist. He's completely unappointed democratically. He's probably got his job through family connections. And yet they feel completely emboldened to be insulting to people in power. And I blame Paxman and I blame a variety of people for this to an extent. But a lot of people, um, particularly those of a slightly conservative mindset, really don't like this. Now, that's not to say you can't ask tough questions, but the tone in which it's done 
verges on the insulting, I think, in many cases. And so Trump broke the rules that every other politician seems to adhere to, which is you take it on the chin. And Trump used to just punch back. And there's also, I think the other thing is that one, there's always a bias because narrative bias is a bias and journalists retail stories and you can construct a story from not very much, okay? As I think happened with the Boris Johnson NATO summit. You know, you can argue that Britain left the EU. Britain is not an irrelevant country within NATO um, because in terms of military spending, it's relatively quite high. So no one's realistically going to be ignoring the British contribution in, in a NATO event, okay? But that was the story they chose to tell. And so there's always that bias, which is you are, you effectively can cobble together a story from three, you know, otherwise unrelated facts fairly easily. There's also, I think, there's also a kind of cheat in that you're allowed to go in with completely forensic questioning, where you're allowed to assume that the politician has to memorise a whole series of figures about how much is being spent and over what time scale. But you're allowed then to have a single um, news report of someone who's sad about something, okay, and effectively blame the politician for that one person's sadness. Now, a politician can't go on and go, yesterday loads of people had sex, ate pizza and won the lottery and it was all down to our fantastic... You know, a politician can't claim credit for one person being happy, but a journalist can apportion blame for the fact that one person... And bear in mind, in social media, it's very easy to find one person who's unhappy about practically anything. OK, one person with an entire. Now, if you take the Boris Johnson Partygate thing. OK, now, OK, let's just take this rather strong asymmetry here, which is you can say I was unable to hug my aunt before she died because of Covid restrictions while you people were whooping it up in Downing Street. Now, someone's just lost their aunt, right? Okay, you can't go for the jugular there. It's just, you know, you, you I mean, Norman Tebbit might have done. There are about three people Trump might have done. The thick of it, I'm thinking of, um, and the thick of it for, for non-Brits non is, is Veep, but in the UK. Veep, exactly. No, written, written by the same guy. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Have you ever had to clean your mother's piss? Uh, they keep saying, "Have you? do you know what it's like to clean your mother's piss? And he can't say, well, it's not actually my fault, um, that particular thing, because it looks insensitive. And so that, that emotional blackmail, so it, it's perfectly reasonable to say, yes, but I think your aunt died in a hospital, and there were rather good reasons why you couldn't visit people in a hospital, okay, because they were sites for megatransmission, whereas the other thing happened in a workplace where those people were in close proximity already and had been for 56 hours that week. There's symbolism, though, isn't there? You know, no, I, it was, no, no. But, but equally, I mean, my only question was, I think it was a story, but I'm not 100% sure it was a story, in the sense that I didn't go in during lockdown, okay, I didn't have to. There was a group of my colleagues who had to go in. I have no idea whether at the end of the week they had some drinks. I'll be absolutely candid with you, okay? I don't know, don't want to know, uh, wouldn't necessarily discipline them if they did. Because if you're working under extremely tough and gruelling circumstances, you have a duty to some extent as a manager to allow people a small degree of self-indulgence. You know, it, it, I mean, you know, it's not, life isn't a hair shirt in this competition. Now, I think it was, it, it, show, it showed insensitivity, um, but I can understand why people did it. You know, we've all been, you know, basically in the same room uh, possibly for 16 hours a day for five days in a row. It's Friday. Let's neck down a Chardonnay or two. It doesn't seem to me 
completely unrealistic. I mean, there was no ban on drinking during lockdown. No, but do you not think, though, and I agree with you, and I think we need rule breakers, don't we? That's why we like movies with, like, you know, the heroes always... You don't see a hero going, I'm going to keep my mask on all, all the whole film and never go out. And, you know, the hero would be like, screw this, I'm going to go and have a drink, wouldn't he? And people respect that when it's a movie. Every good cop movie, you have to hand in your badge, don't you? Well, you're suspended on full pay, your badge and gun. Exactly. But, but the thing with Boris was he set the very rule that everybody else had. And I think, don't you have an extra responsibility if you're the, when you're the leader, when you set that rule? I suspect the same thing happened. It, bear in mind, it was in no one's interests to come out and say, um, actually, we did the same thing. I am sure there were some doctors who did the same thing. In fact, I know there were, because people have told me anonymously. You know, you've been working extremely grueling, tough shifts at a hospital. You know, maybe it would be better if, if we Britons didn't culturally tend to respond to long periods of stress by getting slightly wasted. But um, it's been fairly well established for 300 years. I, 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 I'm, I'm fairly sure that journalists uh, did the same thing. Yes, of course they did. Okay, of course they did, right? Now, it was in no one's interest to say, actually, I think this is okay. Okay, and I did the same thing myself. Depending on the newspaper. I mean, I didn't do it because I was sitting at home on Zoom. I hadn't, I hadn't risked my health travelling by tube or going into a crowded office. Um, I also think they, they also get the story. There's this sort of moralising thing, which is how can we, how can we get someone to blub about something, and then put those? Do you know what it's like to clean up piss? Well, it's not really a question you can reasonably answer. Okay. And so um, there is that slightly dubious thing. So I always found it very strange that the the focus on Dominic Cummings and the trip to Durham, which, by the way, had his parents lived in Surrey, nobody would have thought it was particularly egregious. Okay, um, but that all the focus was on that. Now at the same time, Dominic Cummings had done something genuinely extraordinary. Okay, which not a single journalist questioned him about. Which is he went home to his wife. And a child, wife was extremely ill, possibly with COVID, right at the beginning. And he left that apartment or flat and went straight into Downing Street. Okay, what the hell? Not a single question about that. Now, as it happened, I don't think it did lead to any. But, you know, I mean, I, I was I was asked to go into Downing Street at the beginning of the, uh, actually slightly before lockdown. I just got back from northern Italy. And I actually said, look, I'm sorry, there's no way I'm going in in person because I don't want to be patient zero in a, you know, in a, in a mass outbreak in number 10 Downing Street. So I phoned in. Um, perfectly reasonable question, which was, what you know, was government completely unprepared technologically for this kind of thing? Because it isn't only a pandemic which might place your, your government out of action. There are all kinds of other things from terrorism to, you know, uh, you know, some other natural disaster that could do that. Was there enough resilience in the um, in the corridors of government? Perfectly reasonable question to ask. Was it sensible to go from an infected flat straight into number 10 Downing Street? Again, my answer would be, I don't think so. But not a single question. You had literally 25 bright, highly educated journalists all quizzing him about this trip to Durham, which was, in effect, I mean, epidemiologically irrelevant. Okay, you're going to occupy an empty house. And, um, uh, and, you know, and had it been a, you know, had it been a, a thoracic surgeon who'd done the same thing, again, there would have been absolutely no um, opprobrium. 
So I, I, just, I just think that there's this slight game that journalists are allowed to play, um, essentially can play on any of 15 instruments to make a point, whereas you're only allowed to reply in completely deadpan factual terms. And this does seem to me fundamentally asymmetrical. It's noticeable, actually, that as soon as politicians get out of government, as soon as they retire, they become eminently sane and likable people. I mean, think of Ed Balls, Michael Portillo, okay? There's a whole swathe of these politicians whom loads and loads of people disliked actively while they were serving politicians, who, when they can actually speak like normal people. But there's an irony there, because, and it feels like a, a missed opportunity, because when Trump did do that, he was, you know, eminently successful. Yeah, uh, it, it took extraordinary courage because presumably all your advisors would always advise against you slagging off journalists. Is it is it courage or is it just devil may care? Uh, I think it was very clever because I think he realised that his constituency, his supporters, found increasingly found journalists, um, one, they thought they were biased, whether that was true or not is not relevant. The fact is that a lot of Trump reporters had lost respect for mainstream media and the press. And secondly, I think to people who have some sort of belief in, you know, a degree of, of you know, deference in society to, you know, to people in power, uh, the way in which journalists would routinely address the president of the United States struck many of his supporters as essentially um, impudent. Actually slapping back uh, was really very, very clever. I always had this debate with a close friend of mine about people like Trump, and my friend thinks that he's a genius because uh, of what he managed and the success he's had, and it, it points to what you were saying earlier about a journalist compared to this person who's elected. And I always thought it was like it was actually an absence of morals or an absence of caring about how he's perceived. Uh, of course, they, they, they can. I mean, they can be both in that psychopaths and narcissists are often very, very clever, uh, precisely because in some ways you. Uh, you realise very quickly if you're a clever psychopath or a clever narcissist that there are things you can kind of fake or hack. And it, it's rather similar to the fact that in some respects, um, uh, people who are on the spectrum can make very good social psychologists because you have to work it out from first principles. You know, there are many things, if you're not on the spectrum, there are many things which are completely instinctive about how to behave, how to dress, uh, you know, what is a normal topic of conversation in certain social settings, that you never give them any thought. And of course, if, you, if you're non-neurotypical, you actually have to think about that. You know, in, in the same way that there are people who don't have a sense of, of proprioception because of brain damage or some unusual genetic condition, and you've actually got to think about how you stand up. Okay, by which I mean standing up and not falling over is an act of concentration. There's a famous example in a wonderful book called Strangers to Ourselves by Timothy D. Wilson, where he refers to one of those people who has, again, lost this proprioceptive instinct, where you can effectively stand up and stay balanced without having to think about it very much. And uh, in the course of the guy standing up, there's a power cut. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but it is kind of weird. The guy immediately falls over. Because if he can't if he can't see where his various body parts are, he's not capable of balancing. You see. Yes, we did. A, I did a thing on the equator in Ecuador where um, they say if you walk straight, you can't you can't walk straight because you're sort of being pulled by various forces. Although I'm not sure if it's just a sort of tourist gimmick where they plant the idea in your minds. How did you How did you find it? Did you? Well, I can't walk straight at the best of times. You know, no. I'm, a, I'm <laughs> you know, 
Uh, not, not because I'm an alcoholic by any means, but I, I just, just, I can't, I'm just rubbish. I went to an osteopath the other day who said he's never seen anyone walk like me. And I, I think that might be something they say to everyone as well, because then you buy the... Yeah, of course, you buy the, 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 the six-week course of, uh, yeah, corrective treatment. Yeah, it costs hundreds, stuff to put in my shoes. Um, but, you know, I, I do find, I've always thought if anyone walks badly, it's probably me. He said I just lift my feet straight up and plonk them down rather than going heel down to toe and, and just, you know, distributing the weight. On the question of news, by the way, there was a very interesting post on Twitter yesterday, um, uh, effectively saying that, first of all, watching the news to a large extent is a form of self-aggrandizement. That, in other words, it, it reflects your need to appear au courant with world affairs as a way of looking and feeling important, rather than containing information of much value, and to a lot, to an extent, I think. And there is there is honest curiosity. I mean, there is absolutely honest and healthy curiosity. But whether it's an, whether it's actually a good policy, effectively only engage, to engage with the news. In other words, in terms of the signal to noise ratio and also the effect on your emotional well-being, given that bad news is much more high status for a journalist than good news is. We're also we're not we're not interested in news, are we? We're interested in what what you're saying, I think, what's what's chosen for us because nobody I don't know anybody who's really interested in keeping up with what might be going in on in say Myanmar or I don't know because that's not in the headlines, but everybody wants to be kept abreast of Ukraine. It implies there is sort of what you're saying a cool a, a status game to 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 being au courant. Yeah, and I th- I think it's a bit like that phrase of Thomas Sowell's which is um that political activism is a great way for you people to feel important. In other words, I'm not actually accomplishing anything, but I'm engaged with this high issue. And therefore I can, you know, either lay claim to credit for success or make myself feel or look uh, highly compassionate. Now, that's very unkind because an awful lot of very good stuff is done probably in part motivated by virtue signaling. Virtue signaling isn't necessarily a bad thing. Wishing to appear virtuous is you know and and wishing to maintain a reputation for virtue is not you know it it, it probably drives an enormous amount of pro-social and valuable behavior and so being you know sarky about virtue signaling is a bit the same as being very very critical of uh, of um trigger warnings uh the intention behind it's pretty damn decent but i mean i think it, it can get derailed and there's a point at which of course um if you want to quite often the way to solve a problem is quite oblique or creative or unexpected or counterintuitive. And therefore, the means you'll adopt to solve a problem are not the same means as you'd adopt to signal that you care about a problem. If you want to signal that you care about a problem, you tackle it head on and you go straight for it, you know. Now, sometimes that's possibly the best way to tackle a problem. But if it's a persistent problem, it possibly isn't. And so there is that there is at some point a divide, you know, between do you want to look good or do you want to win? Now, I suppose anybody engaged in altruistic activity needs to slightly ramp up the cynicism, just a touch, simply because generally when we're engaged in things that we see as altruistic, we don't question outcomes or motives as much as we would do when engaged in something else. And so, you know, it's very, very easy to have these kind of, you know, someone who works on a charitable campaign to bring water to a village, okay? 
and you know the pipe starts running and the water comes and the locals are delighted and they don't actually bother to go back a year later to see whether it's still working because that's the, you know and actually what you sometimes find is those pipes are sabotaged by people whose previous living was to bring water to the village for a fee um or else you know or else the water gets stolen upstream by somebody else or whatever there's 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 also that thing along what your lines of what you're saying of of when when you um there's studies have been done that when you've done something altruistic or that you feel was altruistic you're less likely to do the next good thing right uh, it's called um, it, it, sometimes it's called moral offsetting I mean, I've got to be very wary about it because it would almost... I mean, there is an argument, which is if you can get people to do good for selfish reasons, why use up their stocks of benevolence? You know, so if people are happy to buy an electric car because the performance and high-end torque is great and because it's really quiet and fun to drive and has great onboard tech and dog mode and, you know, uh, and so on, um, does that matter? What's dog mode? A Tesla, sorry. Um, it's a, I was vaguely tempted to buy a Tesla for dog mode, even though I don't own a dog. So what it is, because you've got an electric car, you can leave the aircon on when the car's unoccupied. Okay. Now, what they, what they realized is you could put it into dog mode, leave your dog in the car with the windows closed. Okay. Uh, in, you know, a car park in Phoenix, Arizona, when the outside temperature's 97 Fahrenheit. And you could go into Whole Foods and buy your, you know, expensive hummus, you see. And then they realized there was a problem because people who didn't know that you could leave the air conditioning on in an otherwise silent electric car would assume that the dog was trapped in an intolerable heat and would start smashing the windows and calling the um, um, SPCA or the PETA or whatever, okay? And so Tesla has a thing where if you put your car into dog mode, which is uh, where the air conditioning keeps the car cool for half an hour uh, while you leave your dog in it. Um, if anybody approaches the car, it displays a big thing in a screen with a picture of a dog and it says, don't worry, my owner will be back within 20 minutes and I'm perfectly comfortable. The interior temperature is 78 degrees or whatever. You wanted it anyway because you can set it. I hadn't got a dog. Um, I was kind of, I, I, it struck me as such brilliant attention to detail. Um, I think it also has a baby in back mode where the announcements, it silences the announcements on the, for, for the backseat passengers if you've got a sleeping child. I mean, it's one of those interesting things that when you have a car that runs on software, suddenly it is possible to build in, you know, as well as obviously things like driverlessness, ultimately, or um, some safety features, you can build in some really, really interesting um, uh, little easter eggs i think you've got to trust it though because your dog's life or perhaps you know they haven't called it child mode but people could leave babies in there obviously they were, i can understand why they wouldn't advertise it as such uh and you're relying on the on the on the tech aren't you yeah i'm, I'm i mean I, you can probably actually with the tesla i think you can monitor the interior temperature of your car from your mobile phone so you know, in fairness, if you're if you're going into a long restaurant meal, leaving your dog in the car, uh, you could probably keep a check that the temperature wasn't going up. Um, but I mean, actually, one of the benefits of electric cars is that in the winter you can set them to warm up ten minutes before you need to leave, and in the summer you can set them to cool down. Oh, amazing! Uh, which is, um, I mean, I, I've only recently got, I got went electric about five months ago. My brother went electric a couple of years ago, and it's interesting because I don't think I really did it for environmental reasons, if I'm being candid. It wasn't irrelevant to my decision, 
um, by any means. Um, but I don't think it was the prime motivation. But what is interesting is that having had an electric car, I don't think I'd ever go back. Which surprised me, you know, if, uh, and I, I think something about partly just the way they drive is really, really agreeable. It's, it's, it's very hard to describe because it's a car which, if you like, you can drive like a limousine if you want to or like a go-kart if you want to. So, it, 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 I mean, this is what's so strange about things like, you know, the Model S Performance Edition, the, um, uh, you know, this new thing, the uh, Lucid, for example, and, you know, the Ford Mustang Mach-E is you have these cars which have kind of supercar performance. But whereas real supercars are pretty much a pain in the ass if you're driving them around town, you know, I mean, it would probably be more enjoyable, to be honest, driving around London in a, you know, an automatic Ford Focus than it would be driving around in a Ferrari, for example. The interesting thing about electric cars is that they are literally a little like three cars for the price of one in that they have, you know, supercar performance for the moments when you want it, which is occasionally, you know, um, you know, really rapid acceleration and maneuverability. But at the same time, you can drive them, which most of the time you do in an exceptionally boring way. And, and all these features, you're saying it's better to sort of wow people with the features than to use up their benevolence, because otherwise they'll just, if they're, if they're only getting it to be a good person, they'll run around sort of, you know, murdering kittens. and. Yeah, I, I, think, I, think, there is, I think there's a degree of this that actually moral licensing, which is because I, I mean, you, you occasionally get people who, I, I won't name it, it's surprising how occasionally you'll get people who work for a charity uh, who can be quite nasty in their personal life. Okay. Um, uh, the volunteer organizations are actually peculiarly difficult to run because the people are doing this for you as a favor and therefore they tend to be very, very fussy about other things or very, very awkward about other things. Um, but also, I think you, you, I mean, you can get this thing. Um, I, somebody came to me and, and said they had a, um, an appalling experience because they rented out their villa on Airbnb and the party were terrible. Okay. The first party behaved appallingly. They complained that the swimming pool wasn't for their exclusive, exclusive use. So the lady who was the landlord said, well, don't worry, I'll give it to you for your exclusive use. Then they turned up with four more people than they claimed and ended up taking over part of the, uh, the other half of the house. And then they didn't want to pay the extra for the cleaning and the changing of the sheets for the additional guests. Okay. And in the end, they left this poor lady a kind of one-star review which was extremely nasty and snarky. And I said, look, since they're your first tenants, the best thing you can do is just kill this, relet the house under a different name and start all over again. Because there's no, you know, it's, it's early enough in the day for you to do this. If they were your 150th guests, you'd be, have a slightly bigger problem. And it turned out they were a party of doctors, exclusively doctors. Now, I hate to say this, I come from partly a medical family doesn't totally surprise me that people who swan around saving lives um, for 48 weeks of the year might turn a bit arseholy when they're on holiday. So I, 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 there is some evidence of this theory of moral offsetting. Um, and, you know, there is an argument that simply says, you know, th there's also the argument about compassion fatigue. 
that if you can get people if you can get people to adopt a beneficial behavior through means other than an appeal to self-sacrifice maybe you should you know why would one you know I mean, you know, it always strikes me as interesting that, you know, if you, you know, one of the weird ways in which people's carbon footprints have probably been reduced a bit is that for reasons I don't fully understand, but which I'm very grateful for, it's now perfectly fashionable to go on holiday in the summer in the UK. Doesn't matter how rich you are, right? You know, you can, you, you know, if you're, if you're minted, you might go down to Rock in Cornwall or one of those places. But you know, I spent four days last summer on holiday in Margate and and so forth on the East Kent coast. If I'd said in 1989 I was going on a holiday to Margate, people would have had me sectioned. And um, so you know, fashions change. I mean, one way of simply promoting pro-social beneficial behavior is just to make it socially acceptable or fashionable you know that's what's happened with zoom in some ways during the pandemic okay you know it was always slightly awkward before 2020 suggesting a video call as opposed to a face-to-face meeting and now it isn't you know and, and so much behavior is simply driven by sort of social norms and habits is that almost depressing that we're, we're that sort of we don't know ourselves as a bit in I, I haven't even mentioned um your book that i read Trans, transport for humans which is brilliant and, and i think there's a point you make in it about uh about ex- exactly that that people don't actually if you ask them they don't really know what they want and we just sort of follow these fashions and things in evolutionary terms having a kind of default mode built into our brain which is when in doubt do what you did last time or do what everybody else does isn't a very isn't particularly silly it's a bit like a camera's automatic mode you know you can do manual override of the settings but when you can't be bothered or when you don't have enough information uh, to do that successfully simply going on social defaults and of course we judge in a sense we think of our behavior not in terms of simply what it is but in terms of what it means and therefore in 2018 uh, you know if you had a two-hour meeting in frankfurt it was courteous to fly to Frankfurt for that meeting, and it was slightly impudent to propose a Zoom call because the Zoom call was an unusual thing. As I always used to say, you know, back in 2018, flying to Frankfurt for a two-hour meeting was like Coke, and a Zoom call was like Dr. Pepper. You know, now, interestingly, if you order a Coke in a bar, nobody will pass any comment, and you won't have to explain yourself. Next time you go into a pub, if you ask for a Dr. Pepper, I guarantee that someone will pass comment and you may have to go, yes, I just really like it in hot weather or something strange like that to actually justify your own yeah. behavior. Why and so, is that? Um, it, it, a lot of it is simply normalization. I mean, you have this really extraordinary property with Coca-Cola, which is you can, you can go to a Michelin three-star restaurant in Paris and you can go to a beach shack in the Caribbean. And in either of those settings, you can ask for a Coke and it will arouse no comment whatsoever. And if they haven't got it, it's their fault. Now, asking for a Dr. Pepper at a Michelin three-star restaurant is going to involve a degree of social awkwardness. And so to an extent, you know, we have these sort of social instincts, which is, you know, you know, when in doubt, the flying to Frankfurt shows respect to the person. I'm getting up at seven o'clock in the morning in order to be in their presence. Whereas in 2018, the Zoom call uh, particularly if the if the person you were meeting was not a massive video conferencing enthusiast, okay, that was to some extent an impertinence or possibly even an imposition, because the guy may not need to know how to set up the equipment or to, you know, 
download the software. QR codes have had a weird, of course, uh, complete revival since uh, COVID as well. Uh, there was a period where people in the creative advertising industry got very excited by QR codes. Then they spent about five years absolutely ridiculing them as something that nobody ever used and that were in complete self-indulgence. And then strangely during the pandemic, partly of course, because phone manufacturers were smart enough to build a reader into the camera. So you didn't have to launch a separate bit of software. That it was partly it was partly a kind of UX thing, but also because actually at you know at various points checking into locations with a QR code proved pretty useful. A large swathe of the population actually got good enough at using them and used them frequently enough where it no longer seemed weird or painful. It still winds me up, but I've got a bit of an old phone. No, it was it's relatively recent smartphones. If you point a camera, a live camera at a QR code, it will bring a thing up on screen saying, do you want to go to this link? Uh, but that's, uh, I think it's only probably the last three years or something, two years, yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's next? And do you spend time thinking about what what the these sort of future innovations will bring over the next few years? And w if we're if we're having this conversation in three years and we say, oh, people didn't expect that this would get bigger than it did. Yeah, I mean, there will always be things I think which continue to surprise us because when I look at businesses, it, quite a lot of this is in my book Alchemy. You, you look at businesses which are hugely successful, and nobody really predicted their existence or or requested it. You know, nobody before Red Bull, before Starbucks, before Dyson, no one before Dyson was going, why can't I spend £700 on a really expensive vacuum cleaner? Okay. You know, no one would have predicted Dyson. Okay. No one would have predicted Starbucks, Five Guys. I'm old enough to remember pre-Starbucks. And when I first went into one in the States, um, it was you know, really pretty strange. So you pay $5 for a cup of coffee and then you wander around carrying it in the street. I mean, I'm I'm actually um, old enough that I can remember the first time I actually drank coffee in a moving vehicle. Uh, and it was with an American friend on a road trip from Connecticut to North Carolina. And we'd stop at gas stations and he'd buy a coffee and put it in a cup holder, which most British cars didn't have in 1993, four, what was it, 95 possibly, okay? And I remember sitting in a car drinking a cup of coffee going, this is really weird. I feel like weirdly American. I'm consuming a hot beverage in a moving vehicle. And it really was like that. I mean, it, it really seemed utterly strange. Now, a little bit of it, a little bit of it would have been, of course, that Americans had automatics, which lend themselves rather better to, because they leave you with one hand free. 
Um, and it's probably true that actually the you know the the British that by the way is another example of something where nobody goes back. Everybody this is one of the most interesting things. Everybody resists it, but nobody goes back, and it's automatic transmission in cars. Why is that? Uh, have you, which are you? Have you made the switch to automatic yet? I haven't, but every now and then I've driven like you know obviously abroad or my dad's car or whatever, and it's automatic and it's it's you know endlessly easier and more relaxed and stuff. But what so so why is it? Isn't it also that the cars in the UK they tend to be a little bit higher priced when they're automatic? It was historically, of course, they were less. Um, they were historically they were less economical. So you, you had notably worse fuel economy with an automatic because they tended only to have three gears. Whereas, uh, you know, nowadays modern automatics will have six or, or something like that, maybe even seven. Uh, they also weren't all that good, but also British cars had much smaller engines, which didn't really lend themselves. You had to, you had to extract, you know, as much that from that narrow rev range where you actually got adequate torque. You had to, you know, really work hard to, you know, out of a Morris Minor 1100 in the, you know, 1970s or something, you really needed a manual gearbox to get any kind of oomph out of it. Whereas if you had a, you know, a chunking great V8, the automatic could cope with it perfectly well. But what's interesting is that people effectively, having learned to drive on a manual, maintain this narrative of i love the feeling of control and i couldn't possibly drive an automatic and you know and generally disparage them when to be absolutely honest anybody who's had an automatic for two or three weeks wouldn't really go back just to be clear also it's worth noting i would i would caveat this a bit if you live in the north of scotland or in west wales and your driving is on a roads winding lovely a roads where you can double the clutch and then you know uh, you know, uh, change down, going into the corner, pull out. It's possible, actually, and quite likely that, actually, you know, having a manual might actually add both to driving um, enjoyment and also just to the quality of driving in general. If I, I, mean, I live in the southeast of England, it's you're either stuck in town traffic or you're on a motorway, right? I mean, for 80% of my driving. And in that case, on the motorway, the automatic makes no difference at all. Um, and uh, if you're stuck in traffic, the automatic's a godsend. Yeah, no, it really is. Do you, do you think there are parallels with books and Kindles? I mean, there are some reasons to keep books. I, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by that because the Kindle, I, it's always worth noting where you get things wrong. I basically thought, now bear in mind, I travel quite a lot and I used to travel more than I did. So the portability of Kindle books, the fact that you could just wang something in a briefcase and you had 500 books to read, was disproportionately valuable compared to someone who basically read at home, okay? Um, but I'm intrigued by the fact that the Kindle never really took off beyond a... Well, no, that's unfair. It, it's reasonably successful. But it hit a ceiling which is below 50... Well below 50% of book sales, if I'm right. Is there, is there a suggestion then that there's a certain level of uh, status and aesthetic in owning the books. I mean, we've seen in Zoom the amount of people with books behind them all the time. You know, you can't do that with a Kindle. Yeah, I mean, they, first of all, a physical book is slightly pleasanter in some respects. I mean, there's a tactile component. Secondly, of course, we've got to remember the gift-giving thing I mentioned at the very beginning, which is you can't really give a Kindle book as a present. And a very large part of the publishing industry is really around gift-giving and Christmas. Um, there is... I mean, there are other advantages in that one of the things I always noticed with my el my elderly father, if I was reading a book on a tablet or a computer, 
he'd get irritated because he'd go, you're spending all that time staring at the computer. Whereas if I was reading a physical book, you're reading a book, people know not to disturb you. You know, that said that actually the physical act of reading a book does send out a kind of message as to what you're up to and what you're doing in a way that staring at a screen could mean anything. Um, but it, it, it's, I mean, okay. I mean, for specialist publications, I imagine it's pretty useful. I imagine it possibly wins out for certain forms of nonfiction. Um, it may win out for certain forms of fiction, but it's still interesting that the book, the physical book retains I, I never expected the book to die. By the way. I'm not one of those people who goes, you know, home videos, the death of cinema, X is the death of Y, because generally what happens is old technologies become slightly repurposed or they find a new use. Not always. I mean, you know, the horse as a form of transport has pretty much been eradicated. Um, you know, we don't see many people with pages or fax machines kicking around. But nevertheless, you know, quite a lot of things like going to the theatre was not killed by cinema for instance, you know, because the meaning changes as the context changes. And when something takes on a new meaning, it often takes on a kind of new function or a new use. But but it did surprise me, I suppose that, I suppose it did surprise me that the Kindle um, sort of maxed out earlier than I would have expected. Yeah, if I mean, I, did, I didn't know about this, you know, statistics or anything like that. So it does surprise me because I'm a huge Kindle advocate. And that's partly because uh, at my sort of age and situation in life, it's not just traveling. It's also, well, when am I going to move house again? When am I going to be in another flat? And I've got, you know, just, just five or six books. That's already extremely heavy. So if you're reading a book a week or whatever it might be, it's it's outrageous the amount of the amount you're carrying with you whereas the kindle is actually one little thing in my pocket oh no no i agree and also for commuting train travel it's very very good but there are other things which there are other technologies which weirdly don't take off so voice dictation interests me because it's you can speak so much faster than you type so it makes obvious sense if you've got to write a thousand words or 500 words voice dictation followed by editing is both higher quality and much quicker than typing the whole thing from scratch. And yet, you know, actually, you've got very good things like otter.ai, which do transcription of voice recordings extremely well. But that hasn't really taken off, partly, I suspect, because of the open plan office. Um, uh, but perhaps with more people working flexibly and at home, we might see an explosion in that. Um, I suspect we'll see an explosion in video conferencing hardware as well. By which I mean specific kit, you know, high fidelity kits designed to do what we're doing now. Yeah, this camera for YouTube was like ridiculously expensive and like ridiculously, it's a whole palaver setting the whole thing up. It can't be like that in 10 years. It's got to be just you buy something for 100 quid and you plug it in and that's it. It's an, opp it's an opportunity for Nikon, Canon and everybody else, I think, isn't it, to take their brands into a new space? Yeah, this camera I'm using is not supposed to be, or it almost feels like it's not supposed to be used for what I'm using it for. And yet I'm sure there are more people who want a very good webcam than there are, you know, hobby enthusiast photographers going out into... I haven't even taken it out once. My, my girlfriend said to do it and I think, oh, I've got to unplug it. I'm using a weird battery with a wire, all sorts of things that are plugged in and it's all set up and I think oh I don't want to take that out and then have to put it up again you know no I had the same thing I took my camera down to the seaside in order to actually record some film footage and it was a pain in the ass rigging up the whole thing again hey I, we've done our sort of time and I haven't even asked you about all the transport stuff I'm gonna have to get you back on at some point yeah very simple on transport so I can, I can do a plug 
for the next appearance, which is simply, it's an absolute textbook case of where an obsession with um, objective metrics of time and distance and speed has caused transport investment to become detached from what humans really care about. It, it, it is very interesting, the transport thing. And I think the reason Pete Dyson and I, when we wrote the book Transport for Humans, realised there was so much application for behavioural science and behavioural economics in improving transport was that it really was a case where the engineers had taken over the asylum in that it was assumed, for example, that all time spent in transit was a disutility. And therefore, you could always make the economic case for making something faster, but you couldn't make the economic case for putting tables and trains so that people could work on the journey. And so you literally had a model which says time spent in transit is a waste of time. Humans are economically completely unproductive when they're moving. Therefore, if you can reduce the time spent in transit, you improve economic wealth and human productivity. And that runs completely counter to my own experience, which is I fantasize about a two hour train ride because it's the most productive I'm going to be all week. You know, there are not many introductions. I've got now reasonable Wi-Fi. And someone brings me, if I've bought a, an advanced first ticket, someone buys me, brings me tea in a bun, okay, while I actually get on with enjoyable, productive work on the way up and probably watch a film on the way back, which is pretty much what I'd be doing if I were at home. And so this utter nonsense around speed and capacity and punctuality, as though they're the only things that people care about, has just led an extraordinary, I think, misdirection of transport investment. Now, by contrast, there are forms of transit which you can't justify using those metrics because the only really real reason they work is because people really like them. So I don't know if you've ever used the Heathrow pod parking, have you? Pod parking, what's that? So at the business car park at Heathrow Terminal 5, the business car park is some distance away from the terminal. But rather than being connected with a shuttle bus, you walk up to one of one of two pod stations in the car park and a little driverless electric pod opens its doors for you and takes you where you want to go, which is typically the airport. On the way back, you can either go to car park pod station A or car park pod station B. And it's a little pod which seats, I guess you could seat six people at a pinch, but realistically it seats four with quite a lot of luggage in the middle. It's completely driverless, it's autonomous, and you travel on your own as an independent unit. Okay. Now it strikes me that that would have a major application um, in certain London routes where it could possibly share cycle lanes with cyclists because it's, it's very predictable in its speed and movement. It doesn't swerve or do anything weird. Okay, so you can actually repurpose cycle lanes so that they also carry these pods. And for certain journeys, let's take the route which goes Liverpool Street, possibly Fenchurch Street, St Pancras, King's Cross, Marlebone, Paddington. Okay, if you connected those stations with pods, you would face a huge uphill struggle to get the funding because everybody would say, well, it's not as fast as the tube. Okay, look, if I've got heavy luggage, I don't want to have to go down a load of escalators. I don't want to go through a load of barriers. I just want to get into a pod with my enormous suitcase, beep six quid on the bloody panel, and have the thing drive me to Marlebone, right? It doesn't have to be that fast. It simply has to be reasonably uh, predictable in terms of the arrival time. 
And the reason people will do it is not really because of any objective metrical superiority, but simply because it's a very pleasant way to travel. You can look out of the window. I often go by bus rather than by tube because I like looking out of the window. Okay. You know, being stuck in, in a tunnel is inordinately worse than being stuck in traffic in a, on the top deck of a bus. It shapes where people people's lives, doesn't it? I mean, the, the comfort and transport and stuff. People will move to commuter, uh, you know, Bushy or Boreham Wood or somewhere where, where they've got these overground trains uh, to go straight into London rather than have to go in the underground. Yeah, actually, actually, Londoners understand it very badly because one of the things that Londoners don't get when they decide where to live is because their entire worldview is centred around the tube map because they use the tube map effectively to understand London. One, particularly North Londoners, are completely blind to South London. Not because South London's necessarily poorly served for transport, but because it's served by rail lines, not by tube lines. I would argue travelling in from Bromley above ground on a train is a lot nicer than travelling in underground from somewhere else. Um, The second thing Londoners don't understand, of course, is fast trains. They tend to assume that journey time is proportionate to distance. But of course, if you're at one of those places like Orpington or Bromley South or Seven Oaks or Oxted or whatever, you know, which is served by non-stop trains, you can actually enjoy a commute which is markedly shorter than the commute you'd enjoy living further inside the M25. And overgrounds. Very great, great thing, by the way. If you want a bit of fun, go and have a look at an isochronic map. And an isochronic map, and you know an isobar is uh, a lines linking points of equal air pressure, okay? And an isochron, those are lines that link places of equal travel time from a given location. So if you go to the isochronic map of London, pop a pin on where your office is, okay? And then you have a slider, and the slider starts with naught minutes and goes all the way out to something like 90 or 120. And as you slide the slider along, it brings into, it shades in all the areas which are within that travel time of your place of work. And so as you slide the thing along, it's very strange. So our own office is just next to Blackfriars Bridge on the south bank of the Thames. Intriguingly, when you get to about 58 minutes, okay, or slightly less actually, Ashford in Kent actually appears because of High Speed 1, because you could take the Ashford train into uh, St Pancras and then just take the Thames link down to Blackfriars, you see. Uh, whereas there are areas that are inside the M25, just towards the southwest of London, which are still not shaded in. And the, the interesting thing with the isochronic map is it shows you that actually we tend to use this heuristic that the further away you are, the longer it takes you to get there. But actually, there are fairly significant holes in the space-time continuum. High speed, you know, high speed one is one particularly marked example, obviously. But also, there are other railway lines where you know Seven Oaks actually shows up fairly quickly, way before you know far more central places do, simply because you it's twenty-five minutes non-stop to London Bridge, and then you get on a Thameslink train. It sounds like a fantastic tool for choosing where to live. It's a fantastic tool because it completely. It completely, effectively explodes your preconceptions of where's central and, and, and you know where's convenient. So no, and, and the transport thing—it's very, very interesting because I think what we've created is a world where being able to justify things is more important than being able to make good decisions. And therefore, we tend to cleave to any numerical measure of anything, 
and we obsess about the improvement of metrics and uh, numerical quantifiable uh, entities, even when actually the human being, I mean, you will quite routinely hear people say, you know, actually the trouble with my commute is it's 10 minutes too short. You know, I used to live. I used to live in Bayswater and travel into Tottenham Court Road, and it was actually a pain in the ass because you went, you walked to Lancaster Gate, and then you went through all the hassle of getting down onto the tube platform, and then you waited for a tube to come in. You sat on the tube during which time you had time to read about three and a half pages of your book, and then you had to go through the whole rigmarole in the opposite direction. Okay, I always remember saying, you know, I never thought I'd say this, but. Um, I'd actually enjoy my commute a bit more if I were seven stops further out. Well, it depends how busy it is as well, because when it's that busy, you just want to get off. Everyone's squashing and sitting on top of you, you know? You just want out of that. No, it's fair. I mean, actually, of course, it's also worth noting that what people want on a journey to work and what people want on a journey back are often very different as well. I always thought the Eurostar failed to capture that in that they gave you quite an elaborate, but not very, you know, an okay breakfast and an okay dinner on the way back. And I always thought the Eurostar got that wrong, that actually in the morning I wanted to work on my presentation or read or do email, and they should have brought me a bacon sandwich. And then on the way back, they should have brought me the finest wines known to humanity. You know, because at that point I'd finished what I needed to do, and I was looking forward to two and a half hours of chilling. You know, that's a nice thought. Yeah. And and, and the, the other, we always look as well like going to Paris. I mean, so, so there's different levels, aren't there, of comfort. And I know it goes underground, of course, the, the Eurostar. But if we're going to Paris, we'll always look to see like how that is compared to like EasyJet or Ryanair, because that is just not fun. Uh, no, I'd all, to be honest, if, if you live in central London, do you anyway? I mean, if you live next to Gatwick Airport or Stansted or something, uh, obviously things are slightly different. But... And annoyingly for me, actually, they, they still haven't opened up Ebbsfleet and Ashford to uh, international trains. I think they will reopen it, but I think it might be next year now or something. Uh, but but interestingly, I mean, I'd always, even if it took longer, I'd pretty much pay a fairly hefty premium to go by train on that journey. Simply because air travel's very, very ill-suited to short journeys. In a way that, for example, uh, long-haul air travel actually it's much much nicer flying from los angeles to london when you get a proper sleep in than boston to london which is a disaster you know you end up with about four hours sleep and in the same way i think um uh, the great thing about the train is you get on the train then there's two and two hours 50, 45 minutes of quality time and then you're in central paris the great problem of flying is that the ratio of actually traveling at 500 miles an hour to time spent dicking around becomes particularly ridiculous, uh, you know, for those short journeys. I've even done, um, I do business trips to, um, to Amsterdam. I mean, I'm kind of a bit lucky sometimes because I can actually say, look, you want me to give a talk? Do you mind if I pitch up at four o'clock or three o'clock in the afternoon? But I've done Amsterdam by train as well on the Eurostar, which I really, really Rotterdam it was actually, which I really, really liked. I suppose that speaks to something I've heard you say about, um, you know, if you're moving in the plane, because I hate stopping. And, and, and we, we we flew to Buenos Aires, my girlfriend's from there, so we go to Buenos Aires quite a lot. And <clears throat> they did this thing where we had to stop in Brazil and we didn't even get out. You just stay on the plane for like three hours. That was that was tedious and that was really, and people were sort of milling around and sort of trying to break the tedium. And as soon as you're sort of going again, you're like, oh, thank God we're moving. And that sense of moving, and I heard you talking uh, about that with a car, for example, that people would take a longer route 
so that they don't have to sit in traffic. Absolutely right. And also with trains, I think trains have probably learned the psychology that if you rumble along at five miles an hour, the passengers are reasonably um, uh, happy. Whereas if you grind to a halt in the middle of a field, they go frantic. Um, and I'd certainly, I used to go home from Canary Wharf to Sevenoaks and I'd go along the A13, not through the Blackwall Tunnel, even when my sat-nav says, okay, it's 10 minutes uh, longer, simply because on the A13, I'd keep moving and the Blackwall Tunnel, I'd have 10 minutes spent stationary. I, I don't know, it's partly actually, I always suspect that one of the reasons people learn to like cruise ships is that moving does give you a license to do nothing in a weird way, doesn't it? Because you feel you're making some form of progress just by sitting there. And so sitting, reading a book or just staring into space in a train is easier to do than the same thing when at home. I get really flustered when it's when it's just stopped like that. And is it also the uncertainty? Because it's like, when are we going to start again? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think that's also that, that when you're moving, you know you're going to get there eventually. Whereas when you're stationary, you, your worst case scenario becomes much, much worse. And so, you know, that, that's one of the most important things that train companies have done is they have, been, to their credit, they're much better at announcements now. So if a train is stationary, they will actually tell you why. I should let you go, shouldn't I? Absolutely superb. It's been a joy, and let's fix another catch-up. I'd love to do that. In fact, when you do the next one, invite my co-author Pete Dyson on as well. Be fantastic. Okay, I've never done a three-way kind of Oh, thing. they're great. They're great, actually. I think four or five might get a bit fraught, but three works really well. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.